Well, there's the request for you. Um, good to be together this morning. Good morning, everybody. Thanks to uh, also Judith and Nicola and Mom for, for leading us um, in worship. Um, uh, I don't know if you heard, there's a lot like big drama in the village uh, over the weekend. And um, the, the drama was that big that the police came to, were, were doing around the door and uh, came to my house um, Friday night, knocked the door Friday night, uh, can't remember what time it was, came to the door and they were pretty concerned about what, was taking, what had happened. They asked me, uh, what were you doing between five and six? And I thought for a minute and then told them I was in P2 in Hardy Memorial Primary School. Um, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, we are red letter living. Um, thinking about the words of Jesus, taking the words of Jesus seriously. I see to be honest, I this morning uh, just was sitting preparing, going over what I wanted to say this morning, and uh, as I scribbled all that I thought that I wanted to say, I began to pray, and I started off just by saying, Jesus, thank you for these words. And part of me realized that, I may be exaggerating the point slightly, but part of me realized that I, that I was almost saying that through gritted teeth. I was praying it and I was wanting to mean it, but if I am actually thankful for these words, if I am actually going to take the words of Jesus seriously, it's going to completely transform my life. It's going to completely turn everything on its head. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this morning, just so you know, we're talking about blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who show mercy, for in turn they will also receive mercy when, when they need it most. And, um, and there's just something about these words of Jesus that it's really easy just to pray, Jesus, thank you for these words, thank you for the challenge of these words, but the reality is that they're so confrontational, they're so counterintuitive, they're so countercultural, they go, just go against the, the grain, they turn everything upside down. And if I'm being really honest, part of me praying this morning was just like, Jesus, I am thankful for these words. I want to be thankful for these words, but it is so difficult to, to take them seriously in the culture that we live in and the time that, that we live in. And that's no different from, uh, from, from those that first, first heard it. It's truly counterintuitive. And I think the challenge for us is if we, as we continue to engage with the red letters, with the words of Jesus, taking them seriously will absolutely change, change everything. And so during, this, during the week, um, you know me well enough by now, I don't know that I'm not strategic enough or not forward planning enough to have um, thought this ahead of time. But there's just something I think this week and maybe in the weeks to come that our midweek series uh, in the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans and what we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount ties together, um, I think, really well. And so it's by, it's by fluke, just so you know, uh, or providence, whatever you want to, whatever you, way you want to think it. Let's go with providence. But so for those that, those that weren't on, it was great to see so many on. Uh, 
as we started off looking at um, introducing Romans and looking at the first 17 verses. And so we'll pick up from there. For those that are going to join, we'll pick up from there. If you want to um, be ready for that, come well armed, some gritty stuff in Romans 1, 18 and onwards. Um, but what I shared with, with everybody, and for those even that weren't on but still are reading through the letter of Romans anytime through your devotional, what I think is one of the most important things to keep at the front of your mind, and I think it was Paul's intention, and I think it is the heart of Jesus, uh, is that the letter is about relationship between the, the Jews, Jewish uh, Christians, Jews in general, and Gentile believers. Um, and not to, re- not, to, not to repeat where we were on Wednesday, but just, just for a minute or two, uh, Paul was writing to a time where uh, Gentile Christians have been worshipping and celebrating Jesus as Messiah for years. And now all of a sudden all of these Christian Jews have be- began to return back to Rome. And there was just such deep tension just such deep tension because here are people that were coming in with all of their traditions, with all of their beliefs of what it was to, to be obedient and to be faithful to God. And Gentile Christians who, who were, had completely different traditions, who had completely came to, to faith a completely different way. And so Paul's challenge, and I think Paul's intention with this letter, was to how do how do people with vastly different backgrounds and vastly different traditions learn to live together and love one another as a community? The heart of Jesus is that he would unite estranged members, estranged brothers and sisters, estranged sons and daughters. His heart is that he would unite, um, unite all as as a family. And so this is, I think, this is the intention of Paul. So as he pens this letter to the to the Romans, he's he is trying to communicate how you live with different backgrounds, different traditions, in a way that's going to reflect kingdom life, in a way that's going to reflect resurrected life. And that was the introduction that we talked about on Wednesday night. The introduction to Romans, those first seven verses, Paul is Paul is 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 laying out um, why this is really important. And why it's important, he just goes back to where the story of Jesus came from, where, where he came from, and how through the power of the Spirit he was raised from the dead. And now this resurrected, what this is now going to look like for a community that he is forming. Because of what, because of what he's done and because of his resurrection, he is forming this community. And that is Paul's intention. And I think it's the intention of Jesus here. What does kingdom life look like? What does pursuing a resurrected life look like? So uh, I read all of the Beatitudes last week. Let me just read, uh, for the sake of time, let me just read the verse that we're going to look at this morning. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Oh, there's, there's so many other different ways of putting it. Blessed are those who give mercy, for they will get it back when they need it most. And I'm sure there's as many, many different versions uh, in the room. Um, last week, we started off with blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Essentially, we came to, at the end where Jesus was trying to communicate to the people what kingdom life looked like, resurrected life looks like people who are fully aware of their need for God, fully aware of their need, um, full awareness of how much we need him, aware of everything that we have has been given. I think it was a good, important place for Jesus to start, um, telling them it was those that know how much they need God that would be blessed. It's those that knew how much they needed God that would experience kingdom life, that would be able to fully live and participate in this resurrected life that he was calling us to. And so there's sort of this, this thought that I want to, Thoughts that I want to lead us into this morning around this idea of mercy is just to to contrast it with its opposite. Um, I think uh, that the opposite of mercy is judgment. Judgments are the opposite of mercy. And Jesus picks this theme up. I think there's several things that Jesus says at the beginning of this sermon that then are, are picked up through the rest of it. and on into his life and one of them I think is uh, around mercy and around its opposite judgment and so he picks up I think the thought again in, in Matthew 7 if we can read Matthew 7 first three verses do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way as you judge others you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Let me just read the next couple of verses. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And what I've become aware of, and I think it'd be interesting for you to test yourself on this, is how possible is it to love and judge at the same time? I want to suggest that, it, that it's impossible. I don't think you can love and judge at the same time. I think what Jesus is saying here is what Paul had caught when he said um, in one of his letters that he was the chief of all sinners. He was he was recognizing, like I'm sure people had there were people that had done maybe worse things than him, than he had done, but it was an attitude. It was a recognition that there was so much more he had to deal with in his own life before he could begin to take a look at anybody else's. I think I, I reflected on that. Um, briefly last week, where if with Paul, if whenever you view yourself as the chief of sinners, you have nobody to look down on. And I think again, something similar is what what Jesus is getting at in this in this analogy. Um, and I think he is inviting us. He's almost strongly suggesting to us: assume that you have the log in your eye. I remember listening to a preacher. I remember listening to a preacher years ago and, and almost 
again, exaggerating the point of the story as he thinks about, as he talked about the speck that was in a, in a brother's eye when you're sitting with a plank in your own. The speck he talked about was probably about 100,000. He talked about 10, 100,000 times. Uh, the log being 10, 100,000 times bigger than the, than the speck. He's trying to communicate something that I'd like to think of, about your own, what you have to deal with yourself, your own sin, your own uh, stuff as being far more significant or far bigger than what you're trying to point out and judge in somebody else. And again, to go back to what Paul was doing in, in his letter to the Romans, he, he was desperate, I think. I think he was passionate about these two groups of people that he was trying to bring together as the family of God. He was desperate that they would show mercy to one another rather than judgment. They were, because that's, that's the temptation for them and it is equally the temptation for us. The judgment of, well, there's no way they're being obedient because they're not, they're not eating the right foods. There's no way that they're being faithful because they're not celebrating the right festivals. And we have our own stuff today. We'll look at other people and we'll decide, we'll decide where they are wrong because of what they're not doing or the things that they're not believing or the places they're not going. And Paul was so passionate, I think, about not, about not siloing these two groups because that's really easy to do. And especially, I think, for us today, that is a constant temptation to be siloed into one group, to be either on the left or on the right, to be either conservative or liberal. And, and put the, 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 that is so tempting for us. But the problem with that is, is that everything becomes so obvious. I was thinking about this during the week because Katie has picked up um, this word obvious. She says obvious. She adds an extra L in it, which is quite cute. Uh, um, but she, like, I'll, I'll sort of, she'll tell me something and I'll go, oh, really, Katie? And then she'll look at me through the arms and say, obviously, Daddy. Um, so this, this word obvious is maybe just in my, in my psyche, but I think that's what happens whenever we're, we're siloed. This happens when we stay in our own little groups, casting judgments on others, is that everything becomes so obvious. It is so obvious that I'm right. It is so obvious that they are wrong. And whenever we are, we are forced into our little corners, our little silos, and I know I've sort of touched on this before because I'm remembering the time that I uh, upset a few people with saying how much I now disliked this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You in your small corner and I in mine. Now I just think that's an awful song to have got us to sing when we're growing up. Um, so we are so obviously right and they are so obviously wrong. That is what can so easily happen. And the question that I think I'm challenged by anyway is who, who's listening to the other? Whenever we're being forced into our own places, who, who is listening to the other? Who is carving out a third way? And again, I know this is stuff that I've touched on before. Who is that is carving out a third way? And that is what I'm longing for as the church. It's what I'm longing for as someone following Jesus. That I would not be forced into the left or the right. I would not be forced um, into some sort of label, whatever it is. And that's, I don't think that leaves us as doormats. I don't think it leaves us as 
that we have to tiptoe around certain things or certain issues. I don't think that it avoids, it means that we have to be afraid to necessarily offend. But I do think the challenge is that this third way looks, looks different. This third way looks like talking lovingly. This third way looks like treating respectfully. And because that is not in the room, because that is not in the culture, because that is not what is demonstrated in the media, in our politics, in, in almost every sphere you could look at, it's, it will be noticed when it is demonstrated, I think. And it's not that you're being passive by sitting, stand, sitting in the middle, saying nothing and not confronting, and being afraid to offend or tiptoeing around certain things. It's that you're engaging in a way that nobody else is. That you're talking lovingly, is that you're treating respectfully. It's like fully, it's fully demonstrating what Paul talked about at the end of his letter in, to the Corinthians, when he said, "Do it almost seems too basic, but it is so true. Do everything in love." He said, "Do everything in love." How do we show? and demonstrate a third way. How in a world that is full of judgment can we be a people of mercy? And I suppose that's, that, that's the crux of it. That is, the, that is the huge challenge for me, and I think that is the huge challenge for us as church. In a world that is full of judgment, how can we be a people of mercy? Can we be a people of mercy? And I think this is where it gets really this is where it gets really confronting. This is where it gets so challenging for me and for many of us, I think. Is the way that we show love for God is by how we treat those created in his image. And I'd love there was another way out of it, another way around it. We've I've tried it, I think the church has tried it, that we tried it, we separate, we separate the the vertical and the horizontal. So there's the, the vertical relationship that we have with God, and there's the horizontal relationship we have with one another. You need to know this, and I think it is typified in the Sermon on the Mount. I think it is typified in Paul's letter to the Romans. It, it, they are inseparable. You cannot separate them. I'm telling you, I'm convinced of this, that the way that we show love for God is by how we treat those created in his image. Anyone, anyone who uses their devotion to God to justify their mistreatment of others is a liar. And they're not my words, although I agree with them. They're the words of John. In John 1, uh, in 1 John, sorry, 1 John 4, and towards the end of that fourth chapter, verse 19, 20, 21, Paul is essentially, John, sorry, John is essentially saying, if you say you love God, but you hate, or you cast judgment, or you treat unfairly, or you mistreat people with your thoughts and your deeds, the love of God's not in you, you're a liar. It's really, if you want to take these words seriously, it is really confrontational. If anyone who uses their devotion to God, and you, you, you hear it, you hear it, that that the using I think using the Bible as a weapon, things like that, 
using devotion to God as a way to justify mistreatment of others. Anyone who does that is a liar. And this is, again, this is where it gets really, I don't know if I want to say the word interesting, but what Jesus says in Matthew 5 is stuff that is, is picked up again later on in the sermon. Show mercy to others, and then mercy will be shown to you. There is, um, there is a way, the way that we uh, treat others determines how God treats us. Seems, makes this feel really important. Because again, it's, it's picked up on, on the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't forgive, if you don't forgive, then how can you expect to be forgiven when you come looking for it? If you don't show mercy, how can you expect to receive it when you come looking for it? Um, Matthew 6, it is, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your father, heavenly Father, will also forgive you. And I know this is opening a can of worms, but even bringing this up, but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The point being, this is the, it's, the link is inseparable between how we treat others and how we show our love to God. Our inclination, mine is anyway, is to, is to separate. So blessed are those, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And what I want, what I, how I wanted to finish this morning, is this is it's going to have to look like something. Demonstrating. Uh, the love of God is going to have to look like something. Obeying the words of Jesus, living out the red letters is, is going to have to have some sort of practical outworking. And so, just in the stillness, I would just love us to reflect on who is it that we need to demonstrate mercy to. Whether it's somebody specifically in your own life, or whether it's a people group, or whether it's a certain section of that you just continue to cast judgment on, I would love it before we leave, because the, the temptation, for me anyway, when you're confronted with the words of Jesus is to sing a song at the end and get coffee quickly before I have to deal with this. And so, maybe, maybe I'm just asking you to do this to humor me, but I just want to sit with this for a moment and think about how, how am I going to put the words of Jesus into practice this week? Who is it that I need to demonstrate mercy to? And maybe in this silence, you don't need to. You are loving everybody and every, every section of society, every people group. You're free to leave. Um, 
but just in the, just for a moment, in the awkward stillness. Just sit with it for a minute. And maybe there's, there's no, maybe there's no one person that you've done something to. Maybe it's just even on how you think. Maybe it's just a, an attitude. Um, it's just a prejudice. So Holy Spirit, I pray that just in this, in these remaining moments, I thank that you, Jesus, that you confront Spirit. You confront in a way to bring freedom. You confront in a way to bring life. You don't. This is this is not a moment to bring shame or to bring condemnation. The moment, God, to bring to bring freedom and life, not only to us but those that we are in relationship with. So, Spirit, would you come and do something in our hearts and our minds?